Mixology podcast. Welcome to another episode on another fine Sunday afternoon. Uh, as always, I am Lucas Stock, and I'm here with my co-host Jens Nelson. Um, we are very excited to welcome you to today's episode. We're going to be talking about the um, essence of the faith. What does it mean, most basically? To be a Christian, or more specifically, what what is it at the most basic level that Christians believe? And um, the way that we are going to be talking about that is we're going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed, um, which, depending on your experience in church, uh, you might be super familiar with, you might have it memorized, you might have never heard it before, but I think that um, either way, there will be a lot to, to gain from reflecting on it and, and talking about it. Um, so uh, to kick things off, we wanted to do a little overview of what the Apostles' Creed is, where it comes from, you know, why we have it, what it means, that kind of stuff. Um, but first, I wanted to ask, Jensen, what is your personal history with the Creed? Can you Can you think of how you came to learn about it or to learn it or to reflect on it or, or use it at all in any way? Or is Mm. this just something that you've always had, you know, hidden in your heart? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess it maybe depends on how you want to think about the answer to that question. Cause if we're just talking about what the creed says, then I would say then, yes, I would have been able to affirm these things in my heart. Um, But as far as like my specific experience with the creed proper, I would say if if memory serves me correctly that up until going to moody i'm not even sure that i would have known what the apostles creed was um so i i I was never a part of a church that recited it i i don't even know if i could have told you a single line of the creed prior to heading to moody um when i transferred there in 2015 and so i i'm trying to remember when i took cwc or or christianity in western culture with uh, brian litfin um, but in that class was certainly my most profound experience with the creed. If I, if in fact I had ever experienced it. Um, and I guess up until this point, it still is probably the most that I've ever interacted with it. Like, I mean, on a day-to-day basis, the things that are found within it, I think about, um, the realities which affect how I live in this world. Um, I know that the Heidelberg Catechism almost uses it as uh, a way to structure the questions that it asks. So if I ever am going through the Heidelberg, I guess in in some way I have interaction with the creed. Um, but really at Moody in, in CWC, was it one? Is that you took that class, yeah. right? Yeah. So CWC one, uh, yep. uh, Professor Litfin started every single class with the entire class, which was like, it was the biggest lecture hall. And so it was what, like maybe a hundred people or whatever. Um, yeah, probably all, thereabouts. All, all sitting together reciting the creed. And um, so, I, I mean, I remember at first being like, oh, this is so dumb. Why do we have to memorize this? Like, why do we have to recite this? But then I and came That's the thing. To... He, he didn't just make us recite it. He would, like, hide. Each each week, he would, like, remove a line so we'd have to memorize it all. It right. would, wasn't just reading it. Right. By the end, I think we didn't have any of the words, and we were supposed to just recite it from memory, which, yeah. um, you know, at, at that point, my, my theological journey, I wasn't very far along. I wasn't very robust, and so I don't think I fully appreciated it. But now, when I think about it, like, when, one of the reasons that we sing songs, it's not just because, like, they sound good and they're fun, but, like, at some point in Christian history, 
songs were created and sung because it was a way to put into words what the common person couldn't even read or understand because most people Mm -hmm. weren't educated. They didn't know how to read or write. And so to sing songs, um, it was putting theology, it was putting truth into a um, memorable vehicle, a a memorable mode. And it's the same reason that we catechize um, our kids with, with question and answer format. Like, so like the Westminster confession or the Westminster catechism, you know, when it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man? You know, that's the question. The answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Um, we're not just asking and reciting for the sake of memorization, but it's meant to right. um, be ingrained within our minds so that it's ingrained within our hearts and it changes the way that we live. And so by having us recite this creed over and over each and every day, which I think we had that class three times a week, right? Was that a Monday, like a I Monday, Wednesday, so. Friday type thing? Yeah. So we, we were doing it like three times a week for an entire semester. And the point was to like ingrain it into our minds and into our hearts so that would lead to devotion, uh, lead to worship, lead to doxology. And so I guess that's my my somewhat long answer on my interaction with the creed. Um, I don't know. I'm curious what your interaction is because I know you probably have maybe a little bit more of a, a, a real inter- interaction with it. Well, it's, I find it hilarious because, uh, um, I basically have the exact same experience where I did not know what, I probably didn't even know what a creed was saying like lowercase C, let alone what the creed or, or one of the creeds of the Christian faith was. And I remember being like. You know, I, I don't do, I don't even do well at memorizing songs. So like, I remember being kind of <laughs> overwhelmed, like, oh boy, you know, at least this isn't graded. I'm not going to memorize this. And it's, it's funny, like that was my first introduction to it. And I thought, oh, this is fun because this is a, you know, a history class, a church history class. So we're kind of, you know, practicing this, this ancient Christian tradition of saying something together, right. which to me was still a relatively... I guess I'll say foreign or at least unusual concept of of um, public, you know, any sense of of a corporate sort of recitation, whether that's reading scripture on a slide in church or or uh, saying a prayer together that was pre-written. Like just in my growing up experience, we just wasn't something that we did. Um, so, uh, and I, I wasn't ever exposed to any sort of catechism. Um, or catechesis as a as a young growing up kid Same. person um, i mean we, I we were why. but not a formal one i mean we're all catechized in some way when you think mm. about it we're all taught about reality we're all taught about this world yeah but, but not like a formal one like the heidelberg or the westminster or whatever right right um so that was definitely my first ex- exposure to it and, and i think it was like I, similarly i i also feel like looking back i appreciate what dr litfin was doing much more th- than i did in the moment um, Same. and just because i i think i understand you know we'll, we'll probably get into this shortly but just i feel like I, I understand the significance a little more and the value of um sort of like you said having that that collection you know that deposit of 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 christian wisdom and belief sort of ingrained uh, just in our in our hearts and minds. Um, so I, I I think that's funny that we have sort of the same introduction to it. I, right. I you know right around that same time I started going to an Anglican church, and so 
whether it was the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, we were we were reciting a creed every day, every not every day, but every every service. Um, so definitely from that point on, I became more familiar with with what the Apostles' Creed, you know, said had to say. Um, but uh, but yeah, and, and so since that, you know, the last few years, however long ago it was, I took that class. I, I definitely. Um, especially in in recent months, uh, have have really come to appreciate the the creed and for for what it is and and um, what it has to 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 provide to the church at large and also individual believers today. Mm. Well, I think maybe before we even get to the Apostles' Creed, it might be helpful to define what a creed is. Do you want to sort of just give us a very basic yeah. definition of a creed? Sure. So, so the English word creed, um, it, it's not, uh, you know, an exclusively Christian term or even a exclusively religious term, but it comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe. So, um, basically a creed is a statement of belief in something, whether that's that, you know, religious or otherwise examples ahead of time. Yeah. It, it can really be anything. Um, Specifically, in the context of, of Christianity, there are a, a collection of, of creeds that have been, you know, crafted by and accepted by the church throughout throughout history um, that serve as um, su- succinct statements of faith that express in fairly, you know, concise language, fairly accessible. Um, it's not you know, the Athanasian Creed is, is really long, but um, most of the time, you know, it's a fairly short, um, you know, paragraph or, or couple paragraphs that that are sort of, you could think of it as like a bullet point list of what's important to believe. Um, and, it, you know, naming it after, you know, the, using the word creed coming from the Latin for I believe is really fitting because each article in the creed starts with i believe and then you list something that you believe which will we'll get to the specifics of the apostles creed soon um and the reason that the apostles creed is one of the christian creeds that are that are you know worthy of of spending time talking about is because of its own history and where it comes from um and it is one of the not you know probably not the most widely used creed that would probably be the Nicene Creed but it's certainly one of the most widely used creeds and most widely recognized and accepted creed and and when I say that what I mean is Protestants West East you know everybody um, more or less either uses the Apostles Creed and subscribes to it um, or has a level of respect for it and recognizes it as, um, you know, an accurate presentation of, of what it means to, to believe in the Christian faith. Um, I don't know if you, if you, you know, found this in your research, but so apparently there, there's a, there's an old legend that, uh, it was composed by the 12 apostles and each one of them contributed a clause. I saw that, um, which apparently there's, there's no historical basis for that, but my favorite, my favorite like reason that that's not likely is that there's not actually 12 clauses. <laughs> right. Exactly. So... <laughs> I, was, I was trying to figure out the math and I was like, someone would have had to write like, you know, two clauses or something. <laughs> yeah. 
So um, that would be nice. Uh, and that would definitely be, you know, exciting if we could, you know, have a single document where each of the apostles contributed one fraction wait a minute, of it. But wait a minute. So if it's if it's called the Apostles Creed and the apostles didn't write it, then why is it called the Apostles Creed? Doesn't make any uh, sense. Um, that is a good question, and I'm glad that uh, you asked it uh, because um, what's what's the, the answer to that question is also uh, the answer to or an answer to the question of why should we bother reading, knowing, using the Apostles' Creed or any creed, um, and that reason is that. It is the, or I should say, a simple, understandable, accessible presentation of the faith that was handed down from the apostles to the church in the beginning of, of um, you know, the, the end of the first century, the beginning of the history of the church. Right. Um, so whether or not the actual apostles got together to write it down um isn't really important because well we know they didn't but like whether or not they did isn't really important because what we're saying is this is the faith of the apostles and and that is what the church has always confessed that is what scripture witnesses to is the 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 truth about Jesus the revelation of of God in Christ that the apostles were the living witnesses to and they passed that on Jude uh I think it's verse one of Jude talks about the faith once delivered to the saints. Hmm. And that faith is the faith of the apostles. And that faith of the apostles is contained in the apostles creed. Um, and while the apostles themselves didn't write it, the, the content of the faith um, comes from them, comes from their teaching that was handed down generation to generation. The final wording of the creed in it's in the original form, probably um what you know came together around the 8th century uh but um the 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 essence of the creed is a lot older than that um there was something called the old roman creed which was in like the 2nd or 3rd century like late 2nd early 3rd century which was basically a bunch of different baptismal formulas that were being used around rome were kind of put together um and then so if you can imagine like you know like if you've ever you know, in high school biology, when you're learning about like the different, you know, kingdoms of animals and plants and you see like kind of like a, like a family tree, like a genealogy where they all, you know, different kinds of animals trace back to an earlier ancestor or whatever. Um, I might've accidentally just opened a can of worms, but maybe we can do an episode on evolution later. But um, <laughs> like that, that idea, if you think about that sort of, you know, like, an evolutionary, you know, tree, the old Roman creed would be at the top and then coming down would be different creeds. And, and the big, most important one would be the apostles creed. Mm. Um, so that's sort of the, the gist of the history. I'm definitely not an expert um, at all uh, about the history of the creed or creeds in general, but um, the, the apostles creed is, is, it is a presentation of the faith of the apostles that goes all the way back to the earliest centuries of the church. Mm -hmm. And it's something that has been handed down to us today by those who have gone before that great cloud of witnesses. Um, and that's, 
you know, sort of the main reason I would say it's important and we ought to use it. Right. Um, I think, and by use it, I don't mean that if you aren't reciting it in church every Sunday, then you're sinning. I just mean it, it ought to be used as a statement of faith that all Christians can unite around despite Mm -hmm. other differences that might come up on other theological issues. Um, if you want to know what is the core of the faith, um, really the apostles creed is, is one of the best, if not the single best places to start. Right. If you want to know, I think it's important. Right. I think it's important to first note before we even get into reading the creed, um, that it, even though it is a summary of what they taught, it, it isn't an exhaustive summary. It isn't every single thing that has ever been debated about Christ. You know, it's it's um, it's Trinitarian in nature. So it, it you know it talks about I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, but even under those subheadings, it's not like we get into you know all the minute details. It doesn't talk about you know theosis. It doesn't talk about um, commu- uh, communion, meaning. Um, the Lord's Supper doesn't talk about baptism. So those are things that are also important to the Christian faiths. And, and just because they're not included, it doesn't mean that they're unimportant or unrelated or irrelevant. Um, and and part, as we'll kind of see, if we ever do another creed, so if we do the Nicene Creed, if we go um, talk about confessions, like those start to get a lot longer and more verbose because when they were written, when they were composed, there were, there were other theological problems and theological discussions going on that needed clarifying whereas this isn't trying to necessarily clarify anything other than this is sort of the essence of the christian faith this is what the apostles in the most basic format could have taught and and proclaimed in the new testament writings um so i think maybe maybe before we go into a discussion it would be beneficial to read it um so i think i'll go ahead and and read uh at least the the rendering that i have as you alluded to there are subtle differences in translation and um, and how it's been given, but this is like the most basic and common. So it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Um, and one thing I miss about about Litvin's class is when we'd get to Amen, it would be that long, like, Amen. I don't know if you guys did it that way, but there was like... I, I think we might have, yeah. <laughs> Like where we kind of like, like in the doxology, it. right, right, kind of like the song <laughs> doxology, um, and so, yeah, that was that was the Apostles' Creed. Um, there's a, you know, even though it's pretty short, there's a lot of theological implications packed into each of the lines. You know, to say mm-hmm. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I mean, as you alluded to just a second ago about evolution, um, you know, even saying I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Um, for some, that excludes the possibility of, you know, the Big Bang and evolution and sort of our modern understanding of how the world came to be. So to, to right off the bat, to start saying that you believe in God, this Father Almighty who created both heaven and earth, uh, there are serious theological implications to it. So that's part of why it's important that creeds are written, that we have this Apostles' Creed, um, because a lot is said in such a short amount of time. So 
um, do you maybe want to maybe just, uh, we don't have to necessarily touch on every single line and go into great detail, but is there anything right off the bat that, that jumps off to you that you think is important to note or share? Yeah. I mean, just in, in this first, you know, very brief article, I believe in God, you know, you're, you're seeing two things that stuck out to me about God. You're seeing, um, something about who God is, you know, God's essence. He's creator, almighty. The fact that he is almighty, the fact that he is the creator of heaven and earth teaches us something about, um, who he is in himself, teaches him something, teaches us, I mean, something about his omnipotence, about the power that, uh, is contained, you know, in in his being, um, but also he's the Father Almighty. Um, so we're seeing something about who God is in his character, um, specifically the the first person of the Trinity, the Father. But um, we're seeing that there is this loving, th- this Almighty Creator is also a loving relational being because he is he is the Father Almighty. He's not just the the unmoved mover almighty or the, you know, <laughs> can you imagine if it said that <laughs> I believe in God, the father unmoved mover almighty. <laughs> um, like, uh, without, without expanding on it, 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 you know, like we've mentioned and also remember, I, you know, thinking of it as a bullet pointed list, remembering that this comes from baptismal confessions. When, when a catechumen was going to be baptized, they would be given this creed to memorize i've heard that it's actually the the last thing they would learn they wouldn't be taught the creed or the our our father um until they were about to be baptized and that would be the last thing they would learn and then they would confess that creed back as they were being baptized and so that also kind of i think you know is just a good reminder of like the fact that something, especially in today's day and age, you know, we've had 2,000 years as a church to think about these things. We've, you know, countless pages have been written about the most minute of details of theology. And I think that's all good, personally. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that something being short, you know, that doesn't mean that God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, period. That's not bad. That's not deficient. It doesn't say everything that there is to say about God, the Father, um, but it says all that we need to say about the essence of who God is. God is the Father. He is almighty. He's the creator. This is the God that I believe in, that I'm confessing. And, and I think right. that it's, it, when you, even this small sentence, when you break it down, you're like, wow, because at least I was when I realized that, you know, even just those two words, Father Almighty, you get the character of who God is as a relational being and the power that he has as the creator as, as almighty. So I, I think that it's, it's just really amazing how like you, you kind of mentioned how packed in with meaning, even a small phrase it, in this kind of, you know, context of a creed really is. Right. Yeah. And as um, we're going to, as we're going to see, yeah. I think, there are, there are other lines within this creed also contain a lot of theological implications. So I'm, I'm excited to go a little bit further. Um, but as we sort of noted, this creed is Trinitarian in structure. So we already saw that that first line, that first um, article saying, I believe in God, the Father. Uh, it necessarily follows that 
the other members of the Godhead are going to be discussed. So, you know, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. That's the next article that immediately follows, you know, God being creator of heaven and earth. So um, there's that profession of believing in God, but not just some abstract like deity in the sky, but God the Father who created heaven and earth. And I also believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, who is our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So even in those very short sentences, there's a lot of theological implications. The fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Um, those are two realities that we find in scripture that Jesus wasn't, he, you know, he wasn't some um, result of, you know, Zeus coming down and impregnating a woman, um, right. ha- having sexual relations. It wasn't, um, it wasn't as if Jesus was just born to two human parents and Jesus happened to be a really wise and intelligent rabbi who walked around and did miracles. Um, but we're saying that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, and that this Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and then born to a virgin. Um, yeah, and as we know, if we, if we know our Bibles well, these are two things that are uh, prophesied about um, in the Old Testament and are realities that come to bear in the New and they have profound implications and implications that I'm sure you're dying to discuss because I know that these two things are uh, in your wheelhouse more than they are mine. So if, you, if you'd like to take the reins for another moment here, um, what, what do you think about that line of believing in Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, in my own you know, humble opinion, I think that this is the most important line in the entire creed I think so this is the, the essence most... of the essence this is the the pinnacle of the essence of the christian faith yeah i mean to make such a bold statement is a little intimidating but i think you know i would if if i had to i would say something like that not to you know say that we can just cut off the father or cut off the spirit or cut off the rest of what it has we have to say about the son but just um the everything else flows from this line. Uh, And what I mean by that is um, this is where we confess the mystery of the incarnation, where we see God and man coming together. And we see that because like you just explained really well, you have um, the, you know, God, the Holy spirit doing the conceiving um, and and this the miraculous nature of it yeah, being working a miracle by, within the womb, right? Um, and uh, even more of a miracle than the normal miracles that happen right. in wombs. <laughs> and um, and the the fact that you know Mary, it, you know that the mother of God is a virgin um, is. Or I'm sorry, was a virgin. Maybe that's another oh, oh, <laughs> another <man>. accidental controversy. <laughs> um, that reveals the miraculous nature of his birth. Mm. But more than just revealing that it was a miracle, it shows us that he is God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and man, born of the Virgin Mary. Because Mary was a human woman, um, and the Holy Spirit is God. <laughs> um, and in the Incarnation, we have somebody who is not... A really cool person or a really you know good moral teacher uh, yeah a really good moral teacher or a god who is just really close by but we have the 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 you know uh, 
most Emmanuel? intimate. Yeah, the Emmanuel, exactly. The 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 moment in time when God comes to us in the most intimate union that you can imagine. Um, and for a variety of reasons, without the incarnation, nothing else happens in no. our faith. We we yeah. are our corruptible human nature isn't able to be redeemed and deified. Um, Jesus ultimately isn't able to die on the cross because if he was never born as a human, he wouldn't be able to die and thus pay for our sins. Uh, he wouldn't be able, and if he isn't able to die, he isn't able to raise again. Um, and as we'll see, you know, he isn't able to descend into hell. Also, um, like, I think it's interesting because I, I almost want to say that G- the incarnation, you know, when, when I was a youth pastor, I often talked about like the two most important events in human history, the incarnation and um, the resurrection, because those are two very important, you know, we celebrate them on Christmas, we celebrate them on Easter. Mm-hmm. Um, but the I almost want to say that the incarnation is the crux of human history. And what's funny is that word that we use often to talk about like this super important moment or this turning point, this, uh, this moment that can't, we can't do without like is where we actually like crux comes from crucifixion. Like it's etymology. Um, so the crucifixion is also one, like, I think those are like one and the same, the, if, if it weren't, if the incarnation didn't happen, like you said, the crucifixion wasn't going to happen. Um, so like they go together as like these two super important points and not only human history, but like in the cosmic universe, nothing has been right. greater. Nothing greater has ever happened. Um, and I, I mean, that's what the creed goes on to say, even, you know, it says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, which is really interesting that this creed chooses to include a line about suffering under Pontius Pilate, because it wasn't just Pilate who was involved in the the trial. I use air quotes, the trial of Christ. Um, but they, they have it in there, the fact right. that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, and then it says he was crucified, he died, and was buried. And so again, yeah. go ahead. I, yeah. I just want to, like, um, just to pause right there, like, at, at this point, we're seeing who Jesus is, you know, truths about his identity as our Lord, as the Son of the Father, as mm-hmm. fully God, fully man, incarnate, Um and we're also seeing what what he did. We're seeing that he he was crucified, he died, he was buried. You know, it's going to finish <laughs> um, with the resurrection and ascension. But the point is, um, just to continue that that sort of you know pattern that that we see in this in this creed is is it it's teaching us we're confessing together um, who God is and what God is to us by by what He's done, and um, we you know we see that the real man, Jesus, who was really God, was crucified, was dead, died, and was buried. And it just um, really, it's important to highlight each of those steps, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for, I, I mean, I guess there's probably a lot of reasons, but the point is that all of these things really happened. He he really did suffer. He really did was crucified he really did die that might be why pontius pilate is included it's like because Mm. pontius pilate was a real man that i'm pretty sure we have like been able to verify like not just as christians but like archaeological evidence has been found by like pagan um you know non-believers in the world that there is like actual evidence that this man pontius pilate actually existed so i wonder if that is why that line is included 
because um, to you know to mention the Virgin Mary, I mean, some I don't know that we have actual sustainable evidence that could show and prove that like this Lady Mary existed on the earth. Obviously, as Christians, we believe and affirm it, but a lot of people outside of the faith world want to either disprove or prove these things from like a an objective. Here's verifiable archaeological evidence and I'm, and I'm pretty sure we have that for Pilate. so I, i'm sorry i interrupted you but i think because you said that these are things that actually happened and i think that mm-hmm. that le- lends credence uh <laughs> lends credence to the verifiable like this actually happened this is a real person so yeah. continue yeah and i think that that uh they actually happened historically which is right. super important especially for, you know it's not when, a fairy tale when, yeah yeah, exactly. When you're talking to somebody who might not believe or also talking to somebody who does, you know, um, it is encouraging to, to, to be reminded of the, you know, historicity of these things. Um, but also, they actually happened to Christ. Mm-hmm. He actually did die. God actually died, which is wild. <laughs> but it's important. And right. there, it's, it's imp- the, the reason it's in the creed is because it's important. It's because without the actual death of Christ just like without the actual birth of Christ, we can't be saved. Right. Um, and so I think that uh, it's really, um, you know, I don't want to just be repeating myself. I just think it's so cool how so much is packed into so little, so, you know, so many ideas are in so few words and so many important truths. It's like, it, it, it literally is like every single word matters. Right. And every single word has so much beauty and meaning and encouragement and 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 value to 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 give to us when we when we take the time to to read and to think about what it's being saying that 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 he was born of the virgin mary he suffered under pontius pilate he cru- was crucified died and was buried like that's the you know we're, we're kind of we keep pausing there for you know because the next line is a little more uh interesting shall we say but like it 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 continues on you know he he on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he seated it. We have the entire gospel story, you know, from 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 incarnation to ascension. I mean, even beyond, because we're told that he will come back to judge the living and the dead. And it's just right. amazing how how the entire arc of the gospel is is presented. Um, in just and, a and, few lines. <laughs> and not just presented, but it's a creed. This is something that Christians confess together publicly to announce and proclaim what it is we believe, um, which is the gospel. Um, and right. I just, I just, you know, I don't, again, I don't want to just be, you know, a broken record and harp on the same thing. Um, so <laughs> that'll this will probably be the last time I, I point it out, but it's just amazing how, right. how dense is, this is. So, um, completely on that unre- note, Oh, oh no, no, completely no, unrelated. Yeah. Cause you just said you don't want to sound like a broken record. Um, being somebody who really is into records like that, that's a phrase that I think modern, people might not really truly come to grips with or understand (laughs) but like being somebody who loves vinyl records i have a couple records that actually are broken um and what they do is literally because you're it's a it's a disc spinning and there's a needle Mm -hmm. literally playing the grooves of the record um when a record is broken it gets caught in a groove and so it's literally just a loop saying the same thing over and over and it can't (laughs) it can't get out of that loop unless you move the needle so it's really funny that that that's like a 
a figure of speech in English that I sound like a broken record because like, I, I'm just trying to picture the first time that anyone ever said that. Like they probably thought they're really clever. Like you just sound like a broken <laughs> record. You sound like, cause like I have this Bob Dylan record where, where, um, I can't remember exactly what song, but it, it just literally like the same four words. It's like, we'll just say the Valley of vision, the Valley of vision, the Valley of vision. Like it's like over and over and over. It's not just, I thought that was funny. Sorry. No, no, that's, uh, you know, I appreciate very, it. Very it, theologically important. Yeah, no. And I think <laughs> I think that um, it's to prevent, you know, to sort of move the needle, so to speak. Let's move mm. on to... Let's move um, that needle. Let's move the needle to the next, uh, the next, the next line. Oh, here we really, go. We only need, you know, we're going to just read one line and take another pause. But so he descended to the dead. Um, or he descended to hell, depending on what you're, what you're reading. Yeah. He descended to the dead. He descended into hell. Um, either way, it it oh you know it it means the same thing. <laughs> and um, maybe what's we'll what's really what's really interesting is especially if if the version you're reciting says he descended into hell. You know, I I think that's a little bit of a shocking statement. Maybe right. maybe not. But I think that typically when we talk about somebody going to hell, it's it's kind of a big kind of a big deal right right it's kind of a scary deal when we talk about hell it's not pleasant a lot of christians try to avoid talking about it in general just because it's not very pleasant um especially for when you're talking with people who don't necessarily agree with you or don't necessarily believe in jesus but um i you know what what's the deal man why did why do we say that he descended into hell or that he descended to the dead like what's up with that so as we sort of discussed before getting into recording this episode, um, when when I had had an experience with this, and obviously since Moody, I've always felt a sort of a knee-jerk reaction to that line, like reading, he descended into hell, because that's the way I've always read it. I know some say he descended to the dead, um, but to read he descended to hell, I was like really perplexed by what that might mean, that Jesus descended to hell. And I was confused. I was... Um, you know, a little disoriented. And so a lot of people, at least in my, in my research in prepper in preparing for this episode, a lot of people will sort of either gloss over it and be like, eh, I'll just, I don't really want to touch on that. Or they'll like remove it entirely. There are some, um, some of the different iterations of this creed that exclude it because they think that it's like incorrect. Like, Oh, well that, that obviously isn't true. That should not be in there because if we're talking about the essence of the Christian faith, we shouldn't have something false contained within it um so for me i was always i just want to i just want to interject real quick and say that's not okay (laughs) you can't just change things that the church has has passed down uh right exactly because you don't understand it yeah anyway (laughs) and i I think no that's helpful because i think that's the problem is that we don't understand what this means and and part of that is like an an evolution of the concepts and ideas of hell um, so we're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain this to you, and I'm sorry that some of it's gonna be read aloud, but I think we need to read some of the scriptures that will help us understand what this line is actually saying. Because for me, in doing this study, like literally before the last couple of days, like I, I was like, I don't know what to make of this, but now I have such a deep and profound understanding of that line, and I'm like, that's, I, I told Lucas before we started, like I think this is like the most important phrase in the entire thing because of eventually what we're gonna get to. So, um. Let's just, I'm going to read that line again, and then I'm going to elaborate. So it says, I'm actually going to go jump up one, that Jesus was crucified, 
dead and was buried, he descended to the dead or he descended to hell. So Jesus was crucified, he died, and he was buried. Jesus hung on a cross, he perished, and then he was buried, which is what we celebrate on Good Friday, right? Jesus eventually, you know, takes up his cross. He's, you know, a spear goes into his side. He has nails in his hands and his feet. He has a crown of thorns. It's a bloody mess. He's probably naked. It's gruesome. It's painful. The son of God has died. And then he was buried. So this is a reality that all Christians believe and affirm. I mean, if you're a true Christian, like this is, I mean, it's the essence of your faith. Like that's what, it, you're a Christian, you're you're celebrating Christ and what he did. Um, and so what what this next line is trying to describe, where it says he descended to the dead, it's describing what happened in between Jesus actually dying and him rising on the third day. Because like something took place between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So a lot of times it's called Holy Saturday. So like what happened on Holy Saturday? And the issue that I think we have is that in our modern parlance, in our modern culture, our concepts of hell are, in my opinion, grossly misleading. Um, and I think we confuse what the Bible talks about for um, the afterlife right now with what is to come after what happens in Revelation comes to pass, if that makes sense. Um, because when, when we say that you're going to hell, um, it almost has the idea that, like, like let's just say, for example, Lucas, if you weren't a Christian and I said, tomorrow, if you die without Christ, you're going to hell. Depending on what you mean by that, you might be wrong. Because as we'll see in Reve reading Revelation, Ooh. right? <laughs> uh, Spooky. That's, that's right? some bold, bold statements. It's bold. <laughs> but, like, let me, let me, let me go on. Because what I'm trying to say is in saying hell our concepts are like lake of fire, eternal torment, damnation. Those things have not happened yet. Those are the things that are going to happen after the final judgment. Um, so where do we go now? Where does our soul go when we are apart from Christ right now at this very moment? Um, and that's sort of like the essence of what this is about. Um, and so to get that answer, we have to go to scripture. What is scripture? How, how does scripture talk about the afterlife, um, what happens when we die. So Psalm 16, 9 through 10, and this is David. This is David writing a psalm. Uh, he says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And so it's really interesting because this is David. And if you're purely reading the Old Testament as like just this is history and David writing about himself, um, uh, well, David died. David was a man. He perished. Um, and so you sort of have to ask, like, you're, my, he says, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. Um, and so as, as Christians with the New Testament and the Old Testament, we have to uh, view the old through the lens of, or view the new through, well, you know what I'm trying to say? You have to view the uh, New Testament through the lens of the old and sometimes vice versa. Like the Old Testament helps us yeah. understand the new is what I'm trying to say. They go, um, they go together. They're not too disjointed they're not different. things right. that are just like slapped together. Exactly. And so Peter actually comments on this passage in Acts 2. So in Acts 2, this is Peter at Pentecost. So after Jesus has ascended, the, the Holy Spirit has come, it's Pentecost. 
And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of, of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's, that's pretty key, that God raised up Jesus, loosing the pangs of death uh, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And then this is where he quotes the psalm. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. And he ends the quote. So right there, Peter directly quoted that Psalm 16, uh, which David wrote, but David was actually really speaking about Christ and what Christ would accomplish. And so he, mm -hmm. Peter goes on to say, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch, the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it goes on from there. But like, that's really interesting. First of all, Peter's use of the Old Testament, he, he literally said that like, guys, David's dead. His tomb is with us today. You can go see it if you want. His bones are decaying there. But it says that, you know, David was a prophet knowing that God had sworn that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Like that's a really cool passage of scripture to really uh, to dwell upon. Um, but so what we're trying to say here is in this line about Jesus descending to the dead, uh, what we have to understand is that the Old Testament concept of the afterlife is very different from our modern concept of what the afterlife is of heaven and hell. Um, because in the Old Testament, uh, when somebody perished, when somebody died, their body decayed or saw corruption. Obviously, anyone who's a person would affirm that when you die, your body's buried and it decays and you just become like bones in a box basically, right? Um, but your soul would depart from your body and would go to go to a place called Sheol. Um, so you might say Sheol or Sheol, um, but I'm pretty sure the, the Hebrew pronunciation is Sheol, if I remember correctly, Lucas, right, from our, our Hebrew. Um, I think so. That's, that's a throwback. <laughs> so the, this place of Sheol or the place of the dead that's the, the Hebrew word for this place that the soul goes. In the New Testament, it's Hades. So if you ever are reading the Old Testament and you see Sheol, and if you're reading the New and you see Hades, this is speaking of the same place. This is the place of the dead, meaning when any person passes, their soul departs to the place of the dead. And um, to lend, I guess, like further understanding to all of this, we need to turn to uh, a passage in Luke. Um, because Jesus sort of gives us a, a glimpse into um, what this place looks like. And I know some people have read this as a parable. Some people have read it um, in different ways. But I think it sort of gives us a picture of what Sheol is. 
Um, and so in Luke 16, 19, Jesus says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feast and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a poor man named Lazarus, uh, Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. That poor man, so Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades or in Sheol, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So both of these people, Lazarus and um, this rich man have both perished. They both passed away and both of their souls have departed to Hades or to Sheol. One is at Abraham's side and one is at this place of torment. And somehow Lazarus is able to see across this wide or um, the, the, the rich man is able to see across this wide chasm and see Abraham and Lazarus. And it says um, the old uh, the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm, and it has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you might not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house. So the, the rich man is like, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear. And he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if you do not if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So that that's in itself is a confusing passage. And again, some people have read that as a parable. Um, but I think even if it is a parable, like even if there, there really wasn't a rich man in Lazarus, um, I think the idea of what is being communicated remains the same. That when a soul dies, um, if they are in Christ today, or well, I guess for an Old Testament saint, if they were justified by their faith in God and what God would do, uh, then they were carried apparently by the angels to a place of comfort in Sheol. So apparently Sheol has two separate parts. There's the this place of comfort and rest for those who are uh, justified by faith. And there's a place of torment for those who are outside of faith. Um, and so that that is sort of the framework that any sort of Old Testament person would have had. Um, because when we read the Psalms, when we read Job, when we read Isaiah, Sheol appears all the time. You know, do not abandon my soul to Sheol. Um, you know, I, I, I made my bed in Sheol. Um, the point is like, when a person passed from this world, their body again decayed, it saw corruption, and the soul went to this place where the dead were the, the dead went to Sheol. And so I think that sort of brings us to like, I guess, what are, what are we saying here? What does it mean that, um, that people went to Sheol? And so on your point, Lucas, you know, you were talking about the incarnation you talked about the fact that, um, Jesus had to die. Uh, well, first Jesus had to be born that Jesus had to die. Um, and it sort of answers the question of like, 
well, well, why did Jesus have to die? What was Jesus coming to do? What was he trying to accomplish when he came to earth? And I think, you know, someone might give the answer, well, Jesus was dying for forgiveness of sins, which is not untrue. Um, but why did Jesus have to die? Um, what was it about death? And so if we think about it for a moment, if, if in the Old Testament, the idea was when you died, you went to heaven. And if you, so if you were like a believer in the Old Testament, you died, you went to heaven. If you weren't a believer, so like people of Sodom and Gomorrah, you went to hell. Then what was the point of Jesus coming in the first place? If, if after you died, um, you could go to heaven, why would there still need to be a sacrifice? Why would there need to be um, a death um, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying, Lucas, like it's yeah. sort of like if there isn't this place of the dead, um, then it almost seems like Jesus's death isn't maybe not meaningless, but it doesn't seem to like have a great purpose. Where on the other hand, if all people, so if we think about human history from Adam up until Jesus, I think that's a lot of people that perished. So there are a lot of people who were justified by their faith, like Abraham, for example, and David and Samuel, and the list could go on. And then there are other people, people from Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, um, maybe some of the wicked kings of Israel who are in the place of torment. Um, like, what do you think that like Jesus came to do? Well, he came to release the pangs that death had. I mean, that's what, that's what it said in that, um, that passage that we read in Acts, in Acts 2, where it said, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So like the main problem in humanity, uh, I mean, is our sin. And what does sin lead to? Sin leads to death, whereas we were not created to experience death. Um, and so when we think about the fact that when Adam and Eve fell, they brought death into the world, they brought sin into the world. And so not only did we die, like not only did we die physically, um, but our souls went to a place where we were apart from God. Uh, we were in Sheol, you know, whatever that meant. Uh, but when Jesus came, he came to liberate those of faith. So Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Moses, David, like these people who have waited so long and looked forward to. That's again what Peter said. Like Peter was looking forward to the resurrection because the resurrection would get, was his hope. He was hoping in resurrection that his body ultimately wouldn't see decay. He um, wouldn't see ultimate corruption, even though he was in um, Hades or Sheol for so long. Um, the day finally came where Jesus perished. The, the, the son of God, the lamb of God also died, but death could not hold him. It could not keep him in the same way that David was held. And so Jesus went to the place of the dead. Jesus descended to the place of the dead so that he might liberate those who had perished before, but who were of faith. And so now, today in 2020, when we think about what does the afterlife look like? Well, um, I would say that Sheol is still a place that people go, but not Christians, not believers, not people who are justified by faith. I think the the unrepentant, the unregenerate still go to Sheol, and I'll, I'll read a passage indicating why I believe that. Um, but we know from countless examples in the New Testament that the believer goes to be with the Lord. So now when a believer perishes, he doesn't go to Sheol, but he goes to heaven. He goes to the, the you know, sometimes what scripture calls the third heaven, the place where the father dwells. Um, and we await 
um, the second coming of Christ where all things will be to completion and no longer will our soul and body be separate, but we will have glorified bodies. We will have bodies that are incorruptible and we will live forever on the new heaven, um, in the new heavens and in the new earth. And so I think it's important to note, um, uh, a couple things because as I, as I noted here, um, when I said that people apart from Christ, that they go to, to Hades or they go to Sheol, um, this is where I get that from. I'm not just making it up. Um, if you if you read Revelation 20, starting in verse 13, it says, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so that because it says death and Hades gave up. So apparently in some way, death and Hades still hold people within them and it gave them up to be judged. And then those who were judged were thrown in um, to the second death or this lake of fire. And I think that's where our modern idea of hell comes from. Um, The lake of fire, or you mentioned earlier before we were talking about Dante's Inferno, um, the idea of hell being like this fiery place. So it would not be accurate for me to say, Lucas, that like if you were to die right now and you're not a Christian, that you go to hell in the sense that we're talking about the lake of fire. Um, and one thing that I forgot to point out is that in in Greek and in Hebrew, we, we did say that Sheol and Hades, um, it's, the, it's the Greek and Hebrew word for the same thing, but words like Tardis and Gehenna are the words for hell or this... Um, basically this second death, the lake of fire, but all of those things are going to happen after Jesus comes again, after the great judgment before the great white throne. And so mm-hmm. if I was going to be accurate, then I would say, Lucas, when you perish, if I said you go to hell, I don't mean you go to the second death, but you go to Hades, you go to Sheol where you await final judgment. But as we read, apparently it's still a place of torment, a place where you still want your thirst to be quenched. Um, but it's not the the final judgment that we see in the book of Revelation. So I've been talking a lot. Do you want to add something before I like pass out and some water? My uh, thirst is being quenched as we speak right now. <laughs> Lazarus dipped his finger in the in the pool. In the no, I mean I think it's it's fascinating. Like mm. like I think I mentioned to you earlier. These are things that I've never really given all that much thought or reading or heard a whole lot about, whether that be in, in, in classes that I took at, at school or in sermons or, or anything like that. And um, I think it's super, you know, on the one hand, it is just like super interesting to think about all these different words and to think about the future and the afterlife, but more so than just being really interesting, some things, you know, as you were talking, some things that really stuck out to me is just um, the fact that, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be quoting, um, if, let me just pull up the, the quote real quick. Um, is it my boy, John Calvin? Um, I will, I will be pulling up, uh, Mr. John's quote. Um, but so God being incarnate in Christ and human flesh, he, you know, took, so in, in, you know, in the time, you know, back in the day, the church fathers, they, they had this, this concept of, um, you know, so what he was by nature, we become by grace. That's, that comes from St. Cyril of Alexandria. So what, what 
what Christ was by his nature, God, we become by grace. God, Christ deifies us. He, he, in redeeming us, he, we are made partakers of the divine nature. To quote Peter, uh, I can't remember if that's first or second Peter, but one of them. First or second Peter, he says that, that we become partakers of the divine, of the divine nature. And what does that mean? That means God came in the flesh in order to, to transform that which is mortal or corruptible into the immortal or incorruptible. God is incorruptible. He does not see decay. He can't, you know, corruptible in the sense of sin, corruptible in the sense of natural, you know, processes of, of physical decay, you know, just in, in nature or whatever that we see in the world today. Um, but part of Christ's redeeming work is to trade, you know, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about in the through the resurrection by which Christ's resurrection is the, is the first fruits of in our resurrection we are going to trade our corruptible bodies for incorruptible ones we're we're, we're going to um, undo the effects of the fall um, right. I think I think it was Irenaeus talked about um, if you can imagine sort of Christ as the second Adam he kind of comes down and 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 reverses what the first Adam did by right. sinning and bringing in corruption and death um, into the, you know, he, he, he undoes the effects of the fall on human nature, sort of, you know, globally, sort of like right. abstractly, if you will. That's maybe not abstractly, but you know what I'm trying to say. And um, I think that this is a, this conversation around, around the place of the dead, around what it means to be, to be dead as a human being living after the fall, um, I think is really significant for the complete redeeming work of Christ. He didn't just become incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, died, buried, etc. He he did the whole thing, if you will. He he had the entirety of human experience in order to redeem it to defeat death for us not just defeat right. death for himself and this is i think where um john calvin's quote that comes from book two chapter 16 section 10 of the institutes is, is really significant he said calvin says that after explaining what christ endured in the sight of man he's referring to he was crucified died and was buried the creed appropriately adds the invisible and incomprehensible judgment which he christ endured before god meaning descending into hell, descending to the dead, mm -hmm. to teach us not only was the body of Christ given up as the price of redemption, but that there was a greater and more excellent price that he bore in his soul the tortures of condemned and ruined man. Right. Um, so, I, you know, even as I'm reading this back, there might be some, some spots in there where Calvin might be speaking a little more strongly than some might be comfortable. And that's, you know, I think... We can, That's just we can debate. Yeah, we can debate the values of that, or if he's being rhetorical or literal. It doesn't really matter. The point is, why did Jesus ascend to the dead? That was part of his redeeming work. We have a he high priest who, who, who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, and that means all of them. He right. subjected himself to death, so that death on a cross, death on a cross, taking the form of a slave, so that us being slaves who are bound to death and who are subject to death by nature don't need to be subject to death anymore. 
by being united to him. He went all the way into Hades, whatever that looks like, in order to break the chains of of death, in order to undo, to defeat, um, to remove the pangs uh, of death that that hold sway over the human race. Um, So I think that, um, you know, I have nothing really else to add to what you were saying in terms of like the sort of what happens when humans die what does this mean as much right. as to, to tie it back to the rest of the article in the creed regarding christ and what he did it's not out of place at all no, it's, especially and, if we talk about it that way yeah the way yeah. that we just discussed exactly and i think that it's it's um, like i said not only interesting but extremely valuable to um a a sort of uh, like a more complete, a more holistic more robust. view, robust view of, of of what it means for Christ to be our redemption and our salvation. Right. And I, I really like this psalm. Um, while you were talking, I found Psalm 49, 15, where the author, I think it's Korah, he says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will mm. receive me. Um, so mm. that was, you know, a really profound idea for Korah to be explaining that God will ransom his his soul, his spirit from the power of Sheol because from from the point of the fall, so in Genesis 3 all the way through um, Jesus coming Sheol or death had the last, I mean, like, you know um, you know, death, where is your sting? Like that idea that um, death no longer has the power that it once had because of what Jesus did, mm-hmm. because Jesus went to this place. And so I think I just want to read this last little part that I put on here because I think it helps clarify um, why this is so important and what Jesus actually did. So it says, following his death for sin. So after Jesus was crucified, after he passed, Jesus journeys to Hades, to the city of death, and rips its gates off the hinges. He liberates Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, John the Baptist, and the rest of the Old Testament faithful ransoming them from the power of Sheol. And so that's like Psalm 49, 15, 86, 13, 89, 48. They had waited there for so long, not having received what was promised so that their spirits would be made perfect along with the saints of the new covenant. So when we read Hebrews 11, 39 through 40, um, we're talking about, you know, being made perfect, being made alive in Christ. Um, those people, like, like Abraham, David, they had waited so long for that reality. That's what they looked forward to and longed for. And finally, it was being um, realized. And so after his resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven and brings the ransom dead with him so that now paradise is no longer down near the place of torment, but is up in the third heaven, the highest heaven, where God dwells. So, um mm. You know, I think it's, you know, we, we know that Jesus was no mere man. Jesus wasn't just a man. We know that, as we said, Jesus was also God. And so unlike those who had come before, he had to come to this city willingly and voluntarily. He had to lay down his life, um, but he also had the power to take it back up again. And so like that, that's the whole, like, like, like we said, that's the reason I think that this is the crux not only of the Apostles' Creed, but almost of like the Christian faith, is because in descending to the dead, so in, in Jesus' death, he is accomplishing finally, once and for all, the thing that all people have longed for forever, a solution to the problem of death. So no longer 
is it that when we die, we are separated from God, but those who are in Christ are united with him because of what Jesus has accomplished. So for me, this line, understanding the place of the dead, understanding Sheol, Hades, it has given me a much deeper and more profound understanding of Mm. what that actually means because I almost take for granted the reality that I don't have to go to Sheol. I don't have to go to wait uh, for my liberation, for my ransom, but like Jesus has already accomplished it and all of us who are in him uh, will be united to him. And so maybe, maybe you're kind of sitting there wondering like, well, so where did this, like, how come we lost this conception, this, Um, this thinking about the afterlife. And there are probably lots of reasons for it. I I know the medieval church was um, partially to blame for some of their concepts of hell and the afterlife. You know, we think of like purgatory and the idea of like this intermediate state. Um, uh, I do also know that one of the problems was uh, the King James translation, um, because when we talked about Sheol, this is what is referred to as the pit. So that's the place of the dead, Sheol. But then there's also Gehenna, which is like sort of that like second death, lake of fire type of imagery. And so when when we take those concepts that are both Greek and Hebrew and we put them into English, the King James translation always renders those things simply as hell. And so, um, you know, maybe some of that tradition is carried in today. And, you know, a lot of our cartoons and um, when we think of Satan, you know, he's like a red dude with like a pitchfork and horns and he's in this fiery place and people are on fire. Um, that's not necessarily or it's not at all the biblical picture of the place of the dead. And so I think, you know, I'll I'll stop being the broken record now um, and just sort of close this out by saying that Jesus was crucified. So he died upon a cross. He was buried. So his body was in a tomb. It was, you know, probably ceremonially taken care of as any other Jew would be. He was wrapped in cloth, um, put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and he descended to the place of the dead. And he didn't just do so um, to remain there, but to liberate the pangs of death. So no longer do we have to fear death. No longer does the Christian have to live um, with the anxiety of like what comes next because we have a living hope. We have a reality in which we will be with Christ. And so I think that is a very good segue into the rest of the creed if you want to take over from here. Yeah, and I know that um, we've been sort of focus honing in on some some really specific points and so we're not going to be able to spend as much time on the rest of the creed but i I think it's a good place to note that like um we're not trying to neglect certain aspects of the creed as saying they're less important as much as we're you know like we are trying to and aiming to do on this on this podcast together is we're, we're trying to have these um conversations in a very organic sense as we are um, journeying through the faith walk with Christ and with each other in community. Um, so I don't, you know, I just th- thought it would be worth noting if, if someone's listening and is like, hey, I really want you to, you know, talk about this other thing that you, that you guys aren't mentioning. It, it's not because we're trying to say it's less important. Um, it's just not where, you know, we were led in our, in our own reflections right. and thoughts. And, and that doesn't mean that that's the be all end all by any stretch that's the whole point if, if you've got you know something uh significant that you, that we've you know failed to mention just know it wasn't on purpose and um it might be something we're aware of it might not be so please sh- share with us but um right. to sort of move into the last article we move into the article on the holy ghost the holy spirit i believe in the holy spirit the holy catholic church the communion of saints 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Um, amen. So, say, oh, amen. Amen. Definitely. <laughs> to sort of, to sort of, you know, bird's eye view, uh, sort of to t- to touch on this. Some something that I just wanted to highlight was that um, the the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, what what God, the Holy Spirit does um, is as we see here is intimately tied with the Christian life. We talk about the church communion. You should, of you should note what Catholic means, the Holy Catholic church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, that's a good idea. I'll get to that. And, and the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, all the stuff that happens to, to us as individuals and as the, the as, as Christ's body, the community of faith, the spirit is the one working that out. And I just mm. think that's really uh, noteworthy. Um, I don't really have much else to say about that, but I just think it's it's worth noting that, you know, as we talk about the Father as creator, we talk about the Son as redeemer, we talk about the Spirit as he's the one who is taking these things that we're talking about that Christ did and he's giving it to us as making church, it a reality. as believers yeah. and making it a reality in our lives. Um, so I think yeah, I would prob- add... Yeah, go, I was going to say, I think, I think I would just add that what we just discussed, you know, the long section about he descended to the dead. Um, and when we talk about his crucifixion, like all these things can only be true and realized if those things actually happened. You know, so to talk about um, there even being a church, to talk about having communion with the body, to have forgiveness of sins, to see resurrection ourselves, to have life everlasting. Those are things that could only have happened if Christ came to die. Because if Jesus didn't come to die, those would not be realities. We would still be right. um, in the state of having to go to Sheol. Right. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, w- particularly, uh, you know, another interesting little line would be the Holy Catholic Church. Um, I, I, I'd say it would be, you know, interesting or maybe uh, controversial if you've never heard it before. Really, I'm just talking to my, you know, evangelical Protestant brethren um, right. who maybe when they hear the word Catholic, I mean, I think everybody thinks of the Roman Catholic Church, but what I was going to say is um, not just that you think of the Roman Catholic Church, but you think that Catholic means Roman Catholic Church. But the word Catholic is actually just a word, which means universal or um, or or complete or whole. Um, and so there is a Roman Catholic Church, which has you know in its which is big name, C, big C Catholic. Yeah, and that's because it's it's the name of a particular church body. Similarly, there is, um, you know, there are church bodies that have Orthodox in the name, like the Russian Orthodox Church that has a capital O because that's the, the proper name of a particular church body. Um, but Catholic and Orthodox are words that every Christian who believes in Scripture and God and Christ— uh, I would say better be affirming and better be not just affirming, but striving for, because right. just like, you know, a word that's a little more, it's a little less, you know, locked into one meaning, but orthodox means, you know, right belief or right, right worship. But, you know, it's come to, in a theological sense to mean correct, uh, accurate, you know, doctrines that are consistent with scripture, the, 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 the things that you confess as a church or as a Christian, you want them to be orthodox. You want them to be correct. You don't want to be 
a heretic. <laughs> um, but in the same way, or and in the same way, Catholic means means the universal or or whole or complete. Like I was saying, um, that there are not. I wish I had pulled. I thought to pull this up. I don't know why I didn't. But the I was just reading yesterday the the first few chapters of First Corinthians, um, which are all about unity in the body mm, and. Right. Even even as Paul will go on to highlight all of these other like big sins of behavior, and we're talking about like just unrepentant sexual misconduct, people coming to the Lord's table and getting drunk, and then not leaving any of the body and blood of Christ left for the poor, like pretty big things. But the first thing Paul decides to talk to the Corinthian church about is their division, that there are quarrels. Some are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ, which I always like that, that some people apparently were saying that. So I guess I they were like the, the super, the super Snooty spiritual ones. ones. But, <laughs> but, um, but they were still engaging in this division. And, and um, that's what Paul opens up his letter with, is that what Paul's arguing for is Catholic Christianity. <laughs> and right. what that means is not Paul's arguing for you know, the Roman Catholic Church as it stands in the 21st century and all the doctrines associated with it, what Paul is arguing for is that there is one body of Christ. Christ's body is not divided. It's the church in all times, in all places, throughout Mm. the 2,000 years that it has existed, those who are justified by their faith are part of the holy Catholic Church. Yeah, and the the church needs to be holy, which we can kind of associate that with orthodoxy, maybe. Like, we need to be holy as in we need to be set apart. We need to be, uh, you know, reflecting the truth in our in our practice and our belief and our in our proclamation. Um, and we need to be Catholic. We need to strive for unity. Um, right. In the Nicene Creed, it's, I believe, in, in one holy apostolic... Wait, the church... Oh, how, holy Catholic apostolic church. That's what it is. One holy Catholic apostolic church. So there's one church which is holy... So Orthodox, you could say Catholic, we're united, apostolic, we're centered on, you know, like what we talked about in the beginning with the Apostles' Creed, the faith of the apostles that is witnessed, written down in scripture and handed down generation to generation. And and that is what the church is. It's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And Catholic is just as important as holy, and it, and it's just as important as apostolic. And obviously there are nuances in the term in terms of in order to maintain right belief you're going to have to break fellowship with a heretic right so it you know it, but they're not part in, of that catholic church right it, you know in upholding orthodoxy you might need to seemingly break or, or not uphold catholicity and that's a very complicated conversation that has come up all throughout church history when there are heretics or even not heretics but just people who disagree right um you know, we think about the fact that there are different denominations today. You can think, oh, well, the church is even, you know, even even if you look at Rome, like there, there's no sense of one holy Catholic apostolic church. And and that, that could maybe be another discussion on, on what that means. But the point is that um, we confess belief in, in, in one holy Catholic church, the holy Catholic church, the one right. church, which is Christ's bride, which is his body which is united it's not divided there aren't multiple bodies or multiple brides of christ and it's holy it's set apart as a as a as blameless for a pure virgin for 
you know, the bridegroom, which we will um, eventually participate in that great feast in, in the new heavens and the new earth. But the point being, um, when we see division, sometimes it's necessary. Unfortunately, Paul also in Corinthians talks about handing over to Satan an unrepentant sinner for him to basically come to his senses and repent. And um, I think that gives us a good balanced model where our goal needs to be unity. And I mean, you know, complete, absolute unity. But we have to balance that in reality, are, you know, in the real world. Right, there are of, lines that can be yeah. drawn if need be. Yeah, well, I think, so I think, I think that that's, that's just like sort of important to, to keep in mind is, is um, I, was in, I was actually in a church once and they played like a little video. I don't remember if, it, I think they were introducing a sermon series or they were introducing, like there was like going to be some event or something, but they played a little video with, it was like, uh, like a bunch of different images and, and the, the Apostles' Creed was being recited. And then they got to that and it said the Holy Universal Church. Like they changed the word. <laughs> and I remember being this at this point, I, I you know, I, I had gone through Sistheo. I, I had, you know, like I, I was I was like far, far along my, my moody career. So right. I had like, you know, I'd, I'd had systematic theology and had, prof, a, you know, a professor who, who was um taught us all about these and he you know so like i i had i had i had really been like given sort of a view of like the value you know the importance of a creed and and the meaning of it and stuff and to so to hear the church just you know just independently just decide to change a word in the creed i can only assume to avoid the question of what did we why did we say catholic um, and to not have to answer a question, a legitimate question that is fair, and there's nothing wrong with asking it, but I guess they didn't feel like it was worth, you know, the possible question. I don't know. I don't want to judge them, but it's just like I was so annoyed. I was like, well, "What I'll, do you do? I'll do. What do you? I'll do doing? you one better. I'll do you one better." So I was once. I won't say where, but I was once at a church where I had foreknowledge that we would be reciting the Apostles' Creed to finish us uh finish up a um a sunday service Mm -hmm. and um we get to that point in the service and the pastor finishes the sermon and then just says the prayer and we close and so i was like what what in the world like what happened like i thought we were going to be reciting the apostles creed i was all all excited Uh um and come to find out the pastor mid-sermon decided in his head, I'm not going to do this because I'm afraid of the controversy that might be stirred in saying Catholic. So it's, it's interesting that like that, 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 that word trips so many people up. But like, as you were saying, like, as you were saying all that, one thing that kept jumping to my mind, um, especially in our churches today that do seem to be so divided. I mean, we have so many denominations and one of the problems that, that I have with denominations, even though they can be good in some instances, is they cause more divisions than they unify because most denominations exist because there was a difference in opinion on an issue. Um, and so like one thing that I really like about this line of the creed about believing in the holy Catholic church is the fact that, um, especially like in our instance, Lucas, like you're more Anglican theologically, I'm more reformed theologically. Um, you know, we go to churches that are different denominationally, yet we are still united, um, as believers in Christ, as his bride, we are not 
um, as you mentioned, we're not parts, you know, it's not this body over here and this body over here. Um, and I think the church would do really well to dwell for a long time on that reality. Cause I think a lot of times mm. churches get in this mindset of like, this is us in our city, in our neighborhood, in our building and everyone else. Like we love what they're doing. They're doing great things, but there's not, there, there doesn't really feel like that true and lasting unity. Because if we really were to dwell mm. on that, I think we'd have a lot, I think we'd have a lot of um, healthy conversations. We'd have a lot of healthy interactions. Twitter wouldn't be a cesspool of like believers fighting and arguing all the time, but there would be a, a communal love and affection and um, joy together as the universal body of Christ. Mm. So well, that, unless you have anything else, um, do we want to close with our custom customary prayer? Yeah, please take it away. So uh, in the Valley of Vision, uh, I figured given the topic of the Apostles' Creed and the fact that it's Trinitarian in nature, I thought I would find a prayer that was Trinitarian. And it's literally called the Trinity. It's actually the first prayer of the entire (laughs) um, Valley of Vision. So it says, three in one, one in three, God of my salvation, heavenly Father, blessed Son, eternal Spirit, I adore thee as one being, one essence, one God in three distinct persons for bringing sinners to thy knowledge and to thy kingdom. O Father, thou hast loved me and sent Jesus to redeem me. O Jesus, thou hast loved me and assumed my nature, shed thine own blood to wash away my sins, wrought righteousness to cover my unworthiness. O Holy Spirit, thou hast loved me and entered my heart, implanted there eternal life, and revealed to me the glories of Jesus. Three persons and one God, I bless and praise thee for uh, for love so unmerited and so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. O Father, I thank thee that in fullness of grace thou hast given me to Jesus to be his sheep, jewel and portion. O Jesus, I thank thee that in fullness of grace thou hast accepted, espoused, bound me. O Holy Spirit, I thank thee that in fullness of grace thou hast exhibited Jesus as my salvation, implanted faith within me, subdued my stubborn heart, made me one with him forever. O Father, thou art enthroned to hear my prayers. O Jesus, thy hand is outstretched to take my petitions. O Holy Spirit, thou art willing to help my infirmities, to show me my need, to supply words, to pray within me, to strengthen me that I faint not in supplication. O triune God, who commandeth the universe, thou hast commanded me to ask for those things that concern thy kingdom and my soul. Let me live and pray as one baptized into the threefold name. Amen. Amen. Um, thank you for that. Uh, so that will just about do it for today. I think it's pretty, I'm just looking at the, the time. Yeah. I didn't realize how long. Yeah, Sorry. Gone. We went so long guys, but um, again, I think this is a very important conversation to be had as it, as it bears a lot of implications, both theologically, but also just practically for day-to-day life and how we live, how it changes our interaction with each other as brothers and with people who are outside of the faith. Mm. So I think I mean, even yeah. though it went long, I think it's important. And this could have been three times as long. So, oh, you know, yeah, you're, wel- you're I, welcome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, what else are you going to be doing with your time anyway? You, you right? might as well listen to us. Um, These are eternal matters. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. So if you've got, you know, if you want to reach out, 
connect with us, got any questions, feedback, com- you know, comments, ideas, you, you know, we'd love to engage on on the some of the points maybe we didn't get to spend as much time with or even even the ones we did if you've got something you know resources to direct us to to share a conversation we had like i said questions feedback all the above hit us up at twitter on on twitter at doxology podcast you can email us um, at doxology podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you love to connect and once again thank you for listening